listeners, one and all, welcome to Regency Rumours, the podcast where a British-American couple recap and discuss Bridgerton, the Regency Netflix show. I'm Jordan. And I'm Kayla. And we are so sorry that this episode is late. It's been a week. It's been a week of, like, highs and lows, I feel like. I've had PhD work on. We've just been busy. Life in general. I think I've not really, like, updated our listeners. I'm doing a podcast for my actual PhD, so I've had interviews going on, and I've had research and all sorts, and it's just been one of those things where um, this podcast, which is like so fun for us to be able to do, but we do it in our free time between work and research on my end, and so unfortunately, I had to prioritize my uh, my podcast for my PhD in the last week, so... For once. Excuse me? No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> But we do have an official announcement of a second season of Bridgerton. Woohoo! We've been waiting on this since the show came out, and so we're really excited that it's happened and that they've announced it. I don't know why it's taken so long. Bridgerton is obviously a hit. Uh, I think what was so cool about the announcement is they had Lady Whistledown do it through one of her newspapers, essentially. So there was this post on Instagram, and I'm sure maybe on Twitter and Facebook as well, where it's like the voice of Lady Whistledown talking about how the next season was going to be focused on Anthony. And I think it was just really cute the way that they announced it. I loved it. I haven't actually seen that. I've just kind of heard the news, which is good. But uh, we're not really sure when filming's going to start yet, are we? So it could be like a 2022 release. Yeah, I saw an article where um, Phoebe Denever, she was talking about how she wasn't sure when they were going to start in terms of filming. It's like such a massive show and a huge production. And so for it's so important how the set is and how many people it takes to make the costumes and that, and that sort of thing. So I can see why it's going to be tough to be able to make it COVID friendly. We were talking about the, that the other day and I was saying how with a period drama like this, um, kind of like war dramas, those sorts of things, I feel like it would be much tougher to make this sometimes than say like a sitcom with a small cast or even a sci-fi show or a film that relies heavily on green screen. So you could like, film separately or you have less people in scenes but with a period drama where you have to pack a bunch of people into a drawing room um, or a ballroom to dance a battlefield with a bunch of soldiers or people on horseback I can see why it would be challenging to keep it COVID safe yeah I mean any television filming right now is pretty crazy and thousands of people involved on any kind of a show really and they all need COVID tests 14 days quarantine etc etc one of my co-workers actually went over to Belfast recently to film as a character in a show, and he said it's hard to keep track of everyone. And, you know, what you were saying about a sci-fi show, you know, that's, yes, that's been the norm, but with something like The Mandalorian, for example, they're moving away from green screens, and they're moving towards, like, these kind of mini LCD, or massive LCD screens. So they're probably just the same amount of people in a, in a set for The Mandalorian as they would be for Bridgerton. Um, depending on the scene, obviously. But yeah, no, definitely really crazy. So it is really exciting to see the interviews that are happening about the new season that's going to come up. I saw clips of Entertainment Tonight interviewing Jonathan Bailey, who plays Anthony, um, and he's who next season is going to be about. I still need to read that second book. I've got it on my Kindle. I'm going to do it when I'm not constantly researching things. 
Um, which has reminded me, I got to thinking the other day, if some of our Facebook group would be interested in like a Regency book club, we could read some of the Regency, uh, the Bridgerton series and other Regency related books together every month. We can kind of discuss how people want to do that. I know there's going to be some people that are not going to want to read all the Bridgerton series all at once and then be spoiled kind of as the show comes out. So we could put some other Regency books in there and maybe have a month to month kind of thing. I don't know. I'm, I would be interested in it. I know that would be way too much Regency for you, but you could dip in and out depending on books that you may like. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah. Like I said before, I would try and put my effort into reading a, a, like a, a couple of recommendations or something, but I honestly can't until I start reading them. I can't tell you whether I would be able to get through all of them. Well, we could pick a few for you. Mm -hmm. And you could join in. So I was thinking maybe setting up a Discord server or something like that. I might mention it in the group, um, see what other people think. I would love to read the second in the Bridgerton series with some of our listeners. I think that would be really fun. So I will mention it in the group. Yep. And if you want to join in on the group, it's a really casual Facebook discussion group. We've got people bringing up discussions or posting articles about the show every few days. And it's just a, a nice way to share stuff about Bridgerton or discuss themes and um, anything like that. So go to facebook.com slash groups slash Regency Rumors. And just a reminder, if you like the podcast, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to Regency Rumors on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And let's just circle back to the Facebook group and make sure that our American audience knows how to spell rumors correctly. And that is facebook.com slash group slash Regency Rumors with a U. I repeat, with a U. You're not going to let that go, are you? No, don't think so. So we are on to episode four, An Affair of Honor. We're halfway through the series. Because we took so long to upload the new episode and because so much stuff has happened recently, uh, which is Bridgerton related, we've decided to separate this episode into a two-parter. We feel like there's just so much to talk about. So this is part one of Affair of Honor. And the second episode we're going to be uploading the next day after this one comes up. Oh, really? Yes. So we're ruining the schedule? Yes, because we've already ruined the schedule by not uploading. We will, I, I, I do want to say that we've been talking about kind of the future of the podcast and what we're going to be going, be doing going forward. And we will have a set schedule of when we upload and that sort of thing. Um, we will get to, to a normal schedule at some point. So we'll let you guys know when we kind of set up a day that we're going to upload the podcast every week. So follow along with us. Good to know. Okay, so... Back to court. Daphne and Violet are at some sort of courtly event that the prince had invited Daphne to. The queen and the prince enter. Daphne and Violet approach and they curtsy. The prince offers Daphne the gift of a pretty necklace, but as he puts it on her neck, she imagines instead that the duke is putting it on her. And the prince recognises that something is off. Heading to the opening. Back at home, Daphne's youngest sister pesters her about the prince, asking if she'll be sisters with the princess, whether she'll have to learn Prussian, which Daphne replies would be German, and whether she'll be moving away. Daphne shuts herself into her bedroom, declining to answer. The Duke is boxing, getting out his frustrations about Daphne. His boxer friend Will comes in and tries to ask the Duke to stay in London, at least to go to his next exhibition match. 
over at the Featheringtons, an old dude is looking over Marina. He's observing her as if she's a cow at a farm show. He asks her to show her teeth and circles her to see what she looks like. Marina can't believe that Lady Featherington would try to marry her off to one of these types of men. And Philippa finally has a male caller, which is quite cute. And no one can quite believe it, even Philippa. I liked that Lady Violet decided to go against convention and eat something from the buffet before the Queen had. It shows a bit of character, really, doesn't it? <laughs> that would be me. I'd do it. I, w- I wouldn't even, <laughs> being American, I wouldn't even know that I was doing something wrong by eating. I'd just be like, buffet, yes, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, 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 that would be a major faux pas. Really? Mm, oh, to yeah. Before the Queen in, a, in like a buffet situation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because Daphne mentions it in the scene, right? But it's basically you can't initiate the proceedings before yeah. the like the guest is there like you know if they're hosting it if the before the host is there sorry because if they're hosting it then you know it's rude to just get started without them and, and plus it's royalty so yeah and isn't it that when the queen stops eating you stop eating i believe so but... at least I, I think that's the way it was with victoria i'm not sure if the queen now is like let's keep doing that but i do know that maybe well, that was a thing well you know the queen wouldn't do it anyway but the protocolists would um, anybody who gets to meet the queen today will have a meeting beforehand with a, a protocol expert and, yeah. and they will tell them exactly what to do. But it's always funny when Americans meet the queen. I don't know if you've ever seen it. You know, when people all line up at an awards show or something yeah. or like the Royal Albert Hall and the queen comes along and <laughs> actors and things are always bowing and stuff. There was one particular time that, um, Joaquin Phoenix met the queen and he curtsied. No. Yeah, he did. He got confused. He just copied whoever was next to him, who was a woman, and he curtsied. <laughs> <laughs> Is that on YouTube? I'm, I think so. I we'll think have so. to put that in the group because that's really funny. Bless his heart. Uh, and yet, if Daphne doesn't realize how much the Duke means to her now, that she's imagining his touch every time that her bare skin happens to come into contact with someone else... And, well, I mean, we see later she obviously does realize, and it's not the best thing for her. Anyway... Having the old guy look over Marina like that is pretty gross. And it's super indicative of how women were treated before, you know, they had suffrage and uh, were able to vote. I mean, unfortunately, I'm not quite sure this stuff still doesn't happen in some societies. I mean, even, you know, all kinds of things like catcalling and stuff still do happen in modern societies. So it's super depressing. But yeah, I have no idea how I'd feel in a situation like that. I'd be so freaked out if a man was telling me to do that and to twirl and to show my teeth and stuff. It's just super bizarre and you would feel like such an object. I mean, it was literally like a a farmer at the cattle market. Yeah, yeah. And he wasn't even hiding it. So I I do wonder how much that kind of thing really happened just out in the open like it was normal. So... So I really like Will's wife. I think she's feisty and cuts through the BS. And I like that about her. She's like, look, you've got your own moaning situation going on to the Duke, but you're super privileged and we still have to put food on our table. So could you help us out? I think it kind of reminds us as an audience that while yes, everyone goes through relationship troubles, that it's clear that the Duke is doing things irrationally and anyone else with less money and mobility than him wouldn't be able to simply just pack up their mansion and move to another country because they've been a little hurt in a relationship. It's almost as if he comes off as strong, but really he's a bit cowardly. I think Will's wife is able to kind of remind him that he can't just 
suddenly up and move out. It's not really helping anything, least of all his friends like Will, who really actually need his support. Yeah, I mean, really great points. And I agree, Will's wife was really cool for cutting through all of that. And it's something that I noticed on the first, uh, you know, watch through. And on the second, it's just, you, you can appreciate it a little bit more as well. Yeah, some normal people sometimes in this show. Yeah, I mean, it's because we've talked before about how the, this show isn't necessarily the whole kind of class divide between um, the upper house and lower house, like, you know, Downton Abbey. But we do have one or two um, working class folks that are kind of, you know, cutting through the crap, as opposed to that scene where we've where we talked about at length when they go to the poor part of London. We do have a couple of working class people. And well, that's I great. shouldn't say normal. You're right. Working class people. I, I just think sometimes it's very good to be able to see scenes like that because you can get lost in it and think, oh, yes, this is normal for him to just up and move. And it's like she's standing there being like, excuse me, um, help us. Like, get out of your little pity party. We actually have to put food on our table. We have children to take care of. And you've been our biggest supporter. So can you help us and kind of get out of your own head a bit? And I like that. She's feisty. I love it. At the same time, though, he does need to go back to his lands where there are people who are relying on him. What do you mean? The Duke. We'll okay. talk about this in another okay, episode. Fine. But but yeah. So back to the recap. Uh, Penelope and Eloise are out window shopping. I would love to window shop in the Regency era. Uh, so Eloise has decided to get out of the house because she no longer wants to deal with everyone focusing on Daphne. And I agree. <laughs> she praises Lady Whistledown, saying that she must lead a life of independence, not having to go to balls, waiting on a man to dance with her. Eloise wishes that she could meet her so that she can share her secrets with her and Penelope and so that they can avoid marriage in the future. Over at the match, Daphne has come along with her brother Anthony to attend the event. Daphne runs into the prince, but then spots the duke, who distracts her. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> the duke also notices Daphne, and you can see that it is affecting him greatly. The duke keeps rolling up his sleeves as he coaches Will to fight, which definitely distracts Daphne. I think it distracts us all. I love a scene like this. Didn't distract me. Oh, please. I, but I... I, I think this is that common thing and it's all over like Instagram and um, Twitter where it's like a girl's thing or whatever is to watch a guy roll up his sleeves. So I think it's funny. Like it seems like we've we've got some millennials or Gen X's <laughs> on, on, on the writing team. They know that they've seen that. So they've put this in there, which is fun. So whilst chatting to the prince, Daphne learns that the prince also wants children. It seems as if their lives could easily align. So Daphne and the duke are on opposite sides, cheering for different people. But Will wins, much to the displeasure of Lord Featherington, who is also there. Simon keeps finding Daphne's eyes. It's almost as if he's on the verge of crying. I think it's really endearing to see Eloise talking about wanting to be independent and not get a man in the same way that they'd have like a Disney princess waiting on her dream man. It's like she's completely in the clouds about wanting this independent life and thinking it would be so amazing to be Lady Whistledown. It's just so refreshing watching a young woman in one of these series be more excited about a life of ambition than like waiting on the perfect man like yeah clearly lady whistledown's real life isn't perfect and there are challenges that come with being single compared to being married but this 
cute, almost fairy tale attitude that Eloise has about li what life would be like without a man on her own, it's really nice to see, even it's, if it's not reality. No life is perfect. And I just think that that's kind of cute that she's got her head in the clouds about something other than a man. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I wonder if by this point in the series, our listeners have any idea of who Lady Whistledown might be. Mm. Because it's this admiration of Whistledown's life that made me really start to think about what the writers were going to do and whether they were going to pull a fast one on us and make it turn out to be a man. And let's be clear, that would have been very annoying. Because Eloise talking about Whistledown's independence, despite being a woman, um, it, 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 she was doing it so much that it made my spidey senses start tingling. And I thought that they would try it and that they would kind of go, ha you're actually, you're wanting the life of a man. Well, I, I don't want to like do any spoilers for another show, but I know that that happened in a different show for, for a similar type of plot to this one. And there were, oh, interesting. Yeah, there were a lot of people that were really annoyed about that, that it turned out to be a man after all that time. So, yeah, I, I was really hoping it was not going to be the case because that didn't go down well with the, with the other show. So Interesting. So, back to the show. At some sort of men's event, I'm not sure what it is, Benedict has run into his acquaintance from the art gallery. The man tells him that he should come by his studio. On the other side of the room... Anthony and Simon seem to have made up. He tells Simon that he can see that his intentions actually were honorable. Right at that moment, the prince walks up, wanting to talk to Anthony, and Simon is not amused. I love the look he has on his face because it's so telling. He can't hide it anymore. So over at the Bridgertons, Anthony comes up to Daphne and tells her that the prince has decided to propose and has asked for his permission. He tells her that he has no objection to the match, but she hesitates. Her mother tells her that she doesn't have to rush the answer and that she can take her time to decide, which I think is quite interesting. I think most people in that situation, after waiting for so long um, and having so many mishaps that she's had uh, with suitors, like if it was the prince... Normally, you'd just say yes. So I, I think it's just a red flag, isn't it? That it wasn't an immediate 100%. yes. 100%. So later on that night, her mother comes up to her asking if she likes the necklace that the prince has gifted her. A subtle way of asking if she really actually likes the prince. And she tells Daphne that she can keep her options open with the duke. Violet can tell her daughter is still hung up on Simon. And Violet asks what happens between the two of them, but Daphne denies that anything has gone on. Like any good mother, Violet says that she knows her own daughter and that she knows is something up. Yeah, we all do. But Daphne is trying her best not to have to share any of the information that's happened. She finally tells her mother, what you saw was a lie. It was a ruse. The Duke and I were pretending. So that Daphne could attract a partner. She says it was an act and it worked. Her mother tells her that what she wants most for her daughter was to have the best in love, not in rank, but in love. Daphne, holding back tears, says that what her mother saw between Daphne and Simon was not real and that she's sorry that she's done this ruse for so long. Her mother holds her and they don't have to say anything. She doesn't have to say that she's really cared for the Duke. Her mother already knows, despite what Daphne has said. Over at Simon's, Lady Danbury is admonishing Simon as he is packing up his stuff to leave London. 
she believes that he is taking everything he has for granted. She's decked out in a tiara and diamonds, and she's just hanging out at his house. What a legend. She tells him how dumb he is for letting Daphne go. She tells him that he now has the opportunity to be in upper society, now that the king has fell in love with one of us. In love. Simon answers her by saying that the king could change his mind about them at any moment. He hints to the king's mental health issues, which was a known thing at the time, and the reason for the regency period. He says back to her, love changes nothing, which means that he is kind of admitting to love, but it doesn't change anything. He's being so moody. So I really love Violet's character more and more. She's a supportive mother who loves her daughter and wants what's best for her happiness and not just what will look well in society. There are so many examples like the Miss Bennets of the world or evil stepmothers whose actions towards their children are all about society and how things look. It's nice that Violet is trying so hard to convince Daphne to do what makes her happy and not just getting up to the highest part of the ladder. I also love the fact that we see so plainly that Violet has a mother's intuition, right? She knows her own daughter. She knows her daughter is in love despite the ruse. Who cares about the ruse? She knows what she sees despite what's happened. So this somewhat reminds me of, of kind of like Sense and Sensibility, the Emma Thompson version where Eleanor tells Marianne that Willoughby made everyone believe that he loved her despite things never having been finalized with Marianne and Willoughby, like they were never engaged. Just based on their actions towards one another, she knew that Willoughby cared for Marianne and that he'd led everyone on to believe that he loved her. There didn't need to be some sort of definitive proof for that to be true. With Violet, she knew that Daphne had feelings for the Duke and vice versa, which is why when Daphne falls into Violet's arms in this scene, the two don't have to say anything. It's, it's unsaid, and we all know it too. If all of it was a ruse, then Daphne wouldn't be upset. But Violet knows better and comforts her daughter because she knows that there was something more than just the ruse, and I think it's a really good mom. Yeah, a great motherly figure, and it's really nice to see that in a popular show, you know, as opposed to... I keep thinking about Game of Thrones for some reason, but the mothers in that aren't necessarily great. Oh, yeah, that's that's examples of super toxic mothers, Game of Thrones. So, yeah, something like this is very refreshing in my mind, and e even just a lot of other period dramas where where mothers are trying so hard to get, get their daughters up, up the ladders in society, and that's all they care about. So, yeah. yeah. Definitely. So let's mention King George a little here. I think we have talked about this before briefly, but it's a good thing to go back to. So this is obviously the Regency period, and it's called that because there was a regent on the throne as opposed to the king being on the throne, the monarch. So the Prince Regent George, who ended up becoming George IV, King George IV. There's a slight change of history here, obviously, with the mention of the king falling in love with a black woman and changing the fate of all non-white people in the UK at the time. Or sorry, Great Britain at the time. However, the sad part about George III was that his health deteriorated quite severely by the end of his life. Current theories, though these aren't proven, are that he suffered from bipolar disorder or the blood disease porphyria, which is sometimes known as the vampire disease, as it can cause the skin to blister in direct sunlight. Oh, ow. Yeah, and that's actually been known since like ancient Greek times, porphyria. Oh, really? Mm. Mm. 
So it's worth pointing out that analyses of the king's life have gone through a kaleidoscope of changing views that have depended heavily on the prejudices of his biographers and the sources available to them, according to one Sir Herbert Butterfield, Regius Professor of History and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cambridge. Ooh, yes, I? I know. Yes, very fancy. Um, but basically, um, the professor was just saying that all of the opinions and portrayals of King George III, also known as the Mad King George, you know, just just by that moniker alone, you can see that people's opinions of the king changed um, wildly. Mm. And we, it's difficult to kind of say for certain how anybody felt about him because there's so many where, um, varied portrayals. Opinions, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so when, when he's younger when King George III was younger and dealing with those pesky Yanks and their taxes, he was semi-okay, I think, according to the things that I've read. Later, he gets really bad and he can't rule anymore. He accepted the Regency, so it wasn't like he was forced into his bed or anything. The Regency period is also when British troops burned down the White House. Did you know that, my love? I did, and I was just going to say something about that, um, which I've found crazy ever since I found out about that. Um, so uh, two things. One thing is, is I would love to be able to talk about Dolly Madison more, which she was the first lady during, during this time period, um, when British troops did burn down the white house, she was the first lady alongside her husband, James Madison. And she was the one in these moments of panic when the troops were coming up that she was like, let's grab the art, let's grab the artifacts. And she wanted to get um, George Washington, that famous portrait of George Washington, because, you know, even though he was a contemporary of hers, she just knew that this would be an important piece of history. And oh. she she grabbed it off the walls. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily that everything in there was was important that you grab everything. But she was adamant that his portrait needed to be grabbed off the wall because it needed to be preserved and saved for future generations, which I think is really interesting um and it's really a courageous thing to do um and then the other thing that i think is so crazy about mad king george is that during the revolutionary war um there was a time and i'm i'm not sure a hundred percent if this is true or not but anyways it, it was reported at the time that he woke up one morning thinking that he was george washington and he ran around the palace screaming at people to like kill the British, kill the British. And which had to be so crazy if you lived with him or you worked for him in the palace to see him who, you know, is ahead of this massive army waking up and thinking that he is his rival. And it just shows you how bad that his illness was if he really woke up and believed that. I think that's one of those things that we're going to have to kind of maybe think could be true, maybe think could not be true. Because yeah. that kind of... You know, if we're trying to put as an ob objective a hat on as possible, yeah. that could have been propaganda by the Americans. I mean, I I don't know. It, it right. It could it could have been, or it could have been something but that we, happened. Yeah, yeah. We, don't we know. also know that he did suffer from mental health issues yeah. and etc. Um, you know, so it could could have been true. But with you know contemporary belief being that it was possibly bipolar disorder that wouldn't necessarily mean that he'd wake up thinking that he was someone he wasn't that's it that seems like such an extreme case of of something i mean we don't know what it is but something like that seems like extreme 
mental health issues. Yeah. Oh, and, and it's worth pointing out that the porphyria that I mentioned is a, a disease of the liver. Um, you stop producing a particular thing in your body. Um, you get purple urine. Um, but yeah, it's it's it has been linked to vampirism, like I said, because of the direct sunlight mm. burning you thing. Um, but yeah, we don't really know. I think because we don't have like proper full records of his condition, it's hard to say. And I feel like as as compared to now, where there are a lot of things that are are either easily treatable or they're um, they're easily maintained type thing. Mm. I'm sure there's there's a lot of illnesses that could result in giving you mental health issues because they're un untreated, right? Like, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that maybe maybe wouldn't even be just a mental health issue on its own. Like, if if you had a a serious disease that was never treated, yeah, uh, and then that turned into you having hallucinations or yada yada yada. Um, and so. I just feel like that's got to be so scary to to have something back then and have no idea what it is and have no way of treating it and you just get worse and worse like that. I mean, I know. I mean, terrible and and to be a monarch like that. I mean, yeah. I mean, so porphyria again. I, I keep mentioning this just because I, I was reading about it yesterday, but it it's also it's a hereditary disease. Mm. So I don't know. It seems to me that perhaps other monarchs and other members of the family would have had it too if that had yeah. been the case so i don't know I, don't it's know. one of those one of those things it's it's interesting to discuss it anyways just so we have a context of why yes. he's not really in bridgerton and why they mention him and that sort of thing so yeah yeah so george the third ruled longer than any of his predecessors and only di displaced from his number one spot by queen victoria and then obviously her majesty queen elizabeth ii our current queen so despite this illness then, he was a long-reigning king and his reign was marked by many conflicts that Great Britain kind of won, including the Seven Years' War against uh, the French, the American War of Independence, which we lost, and the varied wars against Napoleon, which Great Britain and her allies eventually won in 1815. So lots of winning going on there. But some losing, excuse me. Okay. Pretty big, pretty big loss there. Okay. Just gonna say. Okay, okay. <laughs> but the U.S. and Great Britain got into a tiff in 1812 with the aforementioned burning down of the White House, and that ended in a draw. So good going, USA. Lots of winning there too. But apparently, and this is something I've always found interesting. But apparently, the wood that the Americans were able to use in their ships was just so much superior to the European wood that that we were using that our cannon shot was effectively bouncing off the hulls of American ships, so we just couldn't sink them. So it's not the case that, like, the Americans were better trained. I mean, obviously, the, the British Navy had been literally ruling the seas for hundreds of years by this point. Um, obviously, in contention with the French and the Spanish and Portuguese and the Dutch. But, you know, you know, superior. And then the Americans kind of go, yeah, well, we've got better wood, so what are you going to do? I mean, I think you're right. I think it's one of those things where it's like, at the time, it, it had to have been thought as crazy to defeat the British Navy. Like, oh, oh yeah. my gosh. You know, you had so much power and might at the time. And so it had to have been something like that because there there would be no other way. And and the thing is as well, though, that the that war of 1812, America was kind of fortunate in the sense that we had to kind of go away and beat France. So we kind of went, look, we're not really doing too well over there. So let's burn down the White House. Yay, go us. And then, okay, we're going to leave you in a draw. 
<laughs> right? Because we're going to go and defeat Napoleon. I think it was it was just too much for everybody at the time. So And do you know, so I mentioned there the Seven Years' War. I, I, I think that was France. It could have been Spain, though. But that was actually, that was like a global war. So it was almost a world war because it involved so much of the world. Because at this point, we're talking about the colonial era, right? Mm -hmm. Where the the great powers um, had land and colonies everywhere that it literally pulled people all over to these conflicts everywhere. But it, it's just, it's one of those, it's so protracted and goes over so long because like, unlike now, we can't just get on the phone and call someone on the other side of the world or whatever. So like these things just took so much longer yeah, um, and involved so many people. But I think I, I went a little bit off topic there. So should we go back to the all ball? Right. Another ball. <laughs> Another ball yet again. <laughs> so uh, we're back at a ballroom surprise, and Lady Featherington puts Marina in front of that old dude again. I can't. And he wants to see how she spins, is what he says. Ew. Ew. So Daphne is looking around the ballroom, forlorn. We can tell she's looking for the Duke. Busybody Cressida comes up to Daphne. She tells Daphne that she can't believe she's stolen her chances with the prince. Which... I don't like this character. She's annoying, clearly. Um, but Daphne leaves Cressida very quickly, looking annoyed on the dance floor, and goes to join the prince. In an entirely different kind of social scene, Benedict sh shows up at Sir Granville's house, uh, the friend that he met at the art gallery, uh, where he walks into a room full of um, people um, painting other people who are nude. You know, that's kind of a normal thing that artists do. It's like... Yeah, but I... Yes, yes, okay. Um, <laughs> so, Mr. Granville points out to Benedict that second sons have far less responsibility and more fun, which seems to be a new theme in Benedict's life. You called him Mr. Granville. Are we sure he's a mister? Sir, probably Sir Granville. Yes, I, I keep getting confused. I can't keep up with all this. You can keep up with all of your British titles and remind me. So thank you. Okie dokie. <laughs> so back at the ball, Anthony finds out that Sienna is singing at the event. Oh, horrible. Uh, he can't take his eyes off her until his mother, who clearly has a good eye and can see what's going on. She, that mother's intuition. And she brings up a young woman to try, try and distract him. It doesn't work. And at least she tried. So then Philippa comes running to Lady Featherington with tears in her eyes. The young man who had shown her interest mere minutes ago now will not speak to her. So sad. Apparently Lord Featherington said something to him and now he's avoiding her. Lady Featherington decides to take matters into her own hands and goes to confront her husband. In public. In public. And now, don't even with me, because he's starting to feel very evasive towards her, as he tells her their daughters should just wait until the next season to find husbands. He shuts down her questions by saying, do you truly wish to embarrass me further tonight? I would advise against it. Uh, no, we will talk about this later. Don't even look at me like she's doing something wrong here, because I'm not even with you. So anyways, I'm going back a little bit and saying, I'm not trying to pull any sort of shade towards Violet, but I I don't know why she was thinking that this poor girl was going to turn Anthony's head. Like, just right there on the dance floor, just this random girl that he's never seen before, 
this is where I feel like Violet is acting like a typical meddling mother, but I think she sees that her son is just in a completely different situation that isn't going to help him in the long run. So she's hoping some sort of distracting will help him. So I just, I don't know why she thought that would help, but, and Sienna's all up there with her like boobies out and singing her heart out. I don't think anything was going to distract that poor boy. Um, but on a side note, I'm really excited about the second season being focused on Anthony. I think he's got a bit of a cheeky charm about him. And I think in a way, he needs a bit of taming. So I'm super curious where they're going to go with him this next season. Yeah, definitely. I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about his, his character. In a way, like, I think, you know, everybody's got types and stuff. And I'm, like, obviously the Duke is hot and yada, yada, yada. But I don't know that the Duke is, like, my type you know and like anthony's more of like you know this kind of bad boy hopefully turn good i'm i am down for it don't look at me with those eyes he, he he's nothing like me well you are also my type because i married you okay listeners you heard it here first <laughs> i just mean that i just mean that uh it's all right you, you, no. yeah here's the shovel <laughs> keep going much are you sure really these neither one of these guys are really really my type but i just i just mean because i'm i'm more into a bit of a a nerdier type because we're both quite quite nerdy and bookish and stuff and they they are a bit more i think even social than than either one of us are but i i just mean in personalities i definitely think i would kind of be more into anthony than i would be simon but i mean they're both i mean you know what i mean know what i mean i love you moving on i love you Mm -hmm. so i don't like the manipulation that is going on with lord featherington to his wife yes she is the ultimate ultimate example of a meddling mother but he's being an awful partner by lying to her and manipulating his daughter's chances to find someone who might make her happy like we've seen this whole season these girls have gotten no attention whatsoever. And then it's so cute that she finally gets a little bit of attention from this guy. And it's like thwarted so quickly. So it seems like his actions show that he doesn't really care about the women in his life. He's not concerned with what happens to them. It seems like in a, in a scene like this. So he's just a very passive, aggressive, distant partner. And there's nothing I really like about this character right now. So, Yeah, yeah um we'll talk more about that later but here we we see the continuation of benedict's storyline at granville's house and i really like this a lot i know i mentioned this last episode oh do you oh okay yeah Mm -hmm. not for the reasons that you might assume whatever no no i just i mean that i really like that benedict is finding other artists to talk to and discuss his craft with um it's something that every artist needs and it's just it's kind of it's kind of fun to see that he's like He's got this awakening of like, oh, I can, there are other people who like to do art. (laughs) I mean, that's going to have a totally different meaning in the episodes later on, but I get what you mean for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And I feel like in that way, that's, that's got to be what Eloise is so frustrated about, isn't it? Because she, she recognizes that she knows that, that that's a thing he's capable of going and doing and being around others and and honing a craft like that where she's aware that she doesn't have those same um opportunities opportunities so i I see why she would be frustrated yeah and then like you know the 
horribly ironic thing is that there are women at the apartment well not apartment sorry at the the house of granville who are also pursuing art but what we can assume is that these are either not noble women or that they are perhaps widows or something where they have this this kind of they don't have to be in society so they can be here at granville's house and i don't drawing. think they were younger women as well no no but the really interesting thing is that they I mean, were the very ones were but <laughs> but the really interesting thing about the artists is that they were very clearly well educated as well because they were having a, a discussion when benedict first goes in that was like you know high level economics or something yeah and you kind of go oh cool like here's basically it's the artist's um dream like situation like-minded people intelligent people and just being able to do what he wants and kind of not have all the stresses of it's that whole it's that whole like midnight in paris type feel with with writers where you've got salvador dolly and f scott Fitzgerald and tennessee williams like all in the same room being able to to talk and collaborate and all that sort of thing or the the same with like Tolkien and Lewis and, yeah, and those yeah. kinds it's, of it's writers. Yeah, it's that kind of feel of people wanting, people who have the same sort of um, craft or creativity coming together and being able to collaborate and, and yeah. talk about their craft. Yeah, I get what you mean. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I approve heartily. So, I just want to talk about the whole thing of coming out in society for young ladies. I think most people have a, a vague idea of this, but I just wanted to talk about it a bit more historically. Like in the scene, Lord Featherington mentions that he wouldn't mind if his girls waited till the next season to come out, which it's like, huh, what, what does that mean? What do you mean to come out next season? Um, so obviously things have changed a lot. Girls no longer need to come out in society to date someone or to find a partner, get married, etc. But back in the Regency period, a young lady had to be out in society, which means she's allowed to go to balls, dinner parties, concerts, etc., And it's where she no longer is considered a child. So she can go to these adult events, and it also signals that she's available to guys to be able to marry. So it was a way for men to know who was available to court and who was eligible for marriage. So it was the parents' decision for when their daughter came out into society. It seems like from about 15 to 20-ish, women would come out in society, which... Oh my gosh, it seems so young at 15 to think that girls would come out into society and be seen as an acceptable age to be brides, but that's that's how things were back then. Hey, that's older than some societies historically have married, so... Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so anyways, in Pride and Prejudice, all five of the Bennett sisters were out at the same time, and Lydia was the youngest at, I think, 15, which feels kind of shocking today, like I said, and... I think having watched Jane Austen adaptations, I like to just think these women were of an appropriate age because in the 1995 Sense and Sensibility, Emma Thompson was 36 and Kate Winslet was 20, while in reality in in the novel, Eleanor was about 19 and Marianne was 16. In Northanger Abbey, Catherine was 17. I think Emma is per- perhaps the oldest at 21, but I kind of have a theory that she was out at that age because Emma was wealthy and there wasn't much of a push for her to need a husband. So she had a bit more freedom in what age she came out. But all of these ages today are quite young, which is definitely alarming. That's also why in Persuasion, it's such a big deal that Anne Elliot was 27, which was just old maid territory. Well, isn't there a, a literal term for it? 
um, spinster, is yeah, that? which I think is like twenty seven onwards. Hmm. Yeah, um, and that's the age we got married. I think it's. I think it's also the age that Prince William and Kate got married, which is a huge shift to the age that royal women used to get married. Um, but I think 27 can still be young, to be honest. So the fact that these girls were getting married at like 15 and that at 27 you were just kind of wrote off as an old maid and unmarriageable, it's hilarious. Um, I do wonder how much life expectancy played a part in that. I guess if the life expectancy was like in your 40s and 50s, then you did think that 27 was older to get married. But 15 is still way too young, obviously. So I, th I think... That may not have been as much of a factor as you think, because yeah. the reason that in the past life expectancy was so low was because it was an average, because mm. so many people died in, in childbirth, yeah, yeah. that it brings the average age down. So if you survived past childhood, you more than likely would live on to 70, 80, the same as you do now, you know, in, in general, if you're healthy. So like people wouldn't just like get to the 40s and 50s and suddenly die just because it was like a few hundred years ago. Um, but then obviously there's wars and and like the yeah. certain types of labor that you do and stuff that accidents perhaps. But yeah, no, the, the main thing that brings down the life expectancy in history is obviously childbirth and, and the dangers of childhood. Shoo. Yeah. I mean, we're not we're we're not historians, so we're not going to like say yeah, anything definitively. No. But but yeah, I get I get what you mean. Um, lots of different factors there to just remember. This might be a good point to kind of just remind listeners that this is all kind of casual research and you know, our opinions. Oh, we're, oh totally. We are not yeah. historians in this time period whatsoever. And we're open to real historians telling us what we're getting wrong. Yes, please. If historians want to come on the show, yes, please. Um, so anyways, so in order to be out, a lot of young women would have some sort of event to mark them coming out to society. I'm surprised they didn't do something like this in Bridgerton. You'd think at least one of these balls would be about somebody coming out in society. As many as there are in this series but i i will be curious to see if maybe they'll do that with El eloise or another girl in an upcoming season i think that would be a bit entertaining she'd hate that but it'd be funny um one of the reasons there are so many balls in this season is because it is set stop it <laughs> <laughs> stop it we need to stop that um yeah one of the reasons there's so many of them in this season is because it is set in the season in London, which apparently coincided with the sitting parliament. So politicians would bring their families into London and eventually it turned into an influx of high society wanting to be entertained. So this was a great time for girls to be brought into London during the season because they'd have a higher chance of meeting a husband. It wasn't a requirement to go to London in order to find a husband or to be out, but it's kind of like someone moving to a larger area to meet a partner. So sometimes people will move to like New York or Boston in the U.S. for a bit of job prospects, but also just to have a bigger pool of people. And it was similar in London. Uh, if you found someone that you where you were, great, but there was a higher chance that you could find someone that matched your social standing and brought you better connections if you met them in London. So it was also a great way to kind of get yourself seen. So it seems like the season shifted a bit through time because of the weather and the advancement of transportation and roads, but it was anywhere from about November through July for the season. But the season's height was normally around spring and, and summer. So I think anywhere from like June through August, it seems like. So some of the events of the season would be horse races, cricket matches, operas, concerts, balls, 
footballs and obviously wobbles. I'm going to stop now. Dances. Dances. I've mentioned this before, but never mind. <laughs> there were events that now women out in society could go to and have the potential to meet a husband, but of course, not without a chaperone. So Tatler has an interesting article about kind of the evolution of the season, which talks about the origin of the season all the way up to debutantes in the 1950s and 60s, the kind of debutantes meeting the queen and how how that kind of evolved till till now and when it stopped and I think the 70s. But it's in their section called Inside Bridgerton at Tatler.com. And I haven't really got anything to add. So on to the recap. Back at the Bridgertons, it seems as if Eloise has been left to her own devices as she snuck down to the servants' quarters, or up, it's not quite sure where in the house she is, she's now rifling through Mrs. Wilson's things, the lady's maid of the house. She finds several of Lady Whistledown's papers in a, in a box and confronts Mrs. Wilson, who appears, about why there's so many copies there. She tells her that she demands to know because she's one of the mistresses of the house. But Mrs. Wilson just laughs at her and tells her that she wiped her bottom as a child. I love that. Eloise accuses her of being Lady Whistledown after being embarrassed. And her obsession with this mysterious writer is obviously getting a little bit out of hand, just throwing these accusations out willy-nilly. Mrs. Wilson laughs heartily and asks Eloise, are you not meant to be the smart one? Which I think was a brilliant, brilliant yeah. line. She tells Eloise that no servant has the time to write and therefore couldn't be Lady Whistledown. At first, I kind of thought that this was maybe misdirection, mm. but it's it's clear that this is just delivered straight. Like, yeah. the servants do not have time. I think it's great for the audience to see that as well. Um, I think that was that was quite clever and fun. Yeah, So so we now know that the pool of people that Lady Whistledown could be is, is constrained to a certain cast of characters that Bridgerton is interested in mm. so it's that's it's you know not only is it kind of true but it's also very um pertinent to the mystery of this character back at the dance Colin and Penelope are chatting about Marina's unfortunate situation having to dance with the old dude and I don't think we even remembered his name does it matter he was awful much to Penelope's dismay their conversation turns into Colin asking Marina to dance with him saving her from awkward conversation on the dance floor, Daphne and the prince are dancing, which is where it seems he's about to propose to her. Perfect timing, spinning around other people. <laughs> Daphne can tell it's about to happen, and she tells him that she needs a moment, so she runs outside and, and tries to catch her breath. But there just so happens to be the Duke. He approaches and tries to talk to her. Men have impeccable timing with these sorts of things. Um, yes, you do. Yep. It's always, you know... Right at the, the moment where she's about to make this life-changing decision and he just pops up out of nowhere and he goes... Classic, I, I mean, I'm going to talk about this later, but classic F-boy symptoms where it's like, I got my life together, my life is good, and here you come out of nowhere. I mean, that's exactly who okay, he okay. is in this moment. Let, Sorry. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Jump in the gun. <laughs> so um, he tells her that he's come to the ball to tell her goodbye. It's just an excuse to see her again, really. And she tells him that she doesn't want to be messed around anymore. She's done with the, the whole mixed signals that he keeps sending. And she's done with this situationship. Good for her. She tells him that she's marrying the prince and that she'll be very happy indeed. But he's not so convinced. And she tells him that she does not owe him anything. Yes, girl, yes. She raises her voice, stamps her feet and says, I'm going to be a princess. Yes, queen. Princess. 
princess queen. (laughs) (laughs) She tells him to leave, but he don't. But he don't? (laughs) He don't? She tells him to leave, but he don't. (laughs) We're keeping that. (laughs) Uh, So she... So she will. Yeah, she decides that because he's not going to go, she's going to go off instead. Um, But she goes the wrong way. She goes into the garden... And I can't tell if she does that on purpose or if she's just intentionally, if she's just unintentionally mad and stomping off. But anyway, he follows and says, no, it's not safe. You you can't, you can't be in here on your own. Um, but in, in the garden, they, of course, uh, they get very close and very heated and they start making out and his hands go everywhere. And I mean everywhere. <laughs> Typical. Another man comes in and ruins all the fun. Anthony <laughs> comes up. Her ju- brother. <laughs> he comes up just at the right moment before things get too hot and heavy. And he breaks them up, pummeling the Duke to the ground. He demands that the Duke marries her that moment. He's defiled her innocence. And Simon refuses. Anthony says to his friend, I knew you were a rake, but I never thought of you as a villain. Mm. And Simon says he cannot marry her. Anthony says that he's left with no choice and he demands satisfaction, i.e. challenges him to a duel to save her honour. Simon seems resigned to his fate and he will duel Anthony, even though it's illegal. Simon agrees to meet at dawn. Daphne and quite frankly the rest of us are a little bit confused as to why if he's all up in her business he would rather die than marry her, but all the answer that he'll give is that he's truly sorry. So it's a bit of a mess. As Anthony and Daphne are about to leave the ball, Daphne, in this daze, and she's not really paying attention, almost misses Cressida talking to her. Daphne, you look unwell. Did you catch a chill in the garden? Mm. Dun, dun, dun. This girl, let me tell you. So this garden scene is a typical trope in Regency stories. It's this scandalous location where couples could meet to make out or more, while everyone else was distracted by the ball. I don't really know how much this happened in real life. I guess we'll never know. But it's something that we see in Georgette Higher books, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but I think so. But also in Becoming Jane, maybe Austin Land. I can't really remember. And I've just realized this in Harry Potter as well. Really? Yeah. Like a makeout scene? Yeah, yeah. No, like everybody leaves the ball in, in book four and they, they're they all out in the garden. And the, the, the teachers are going around like throwing spells at kids who are in bushes making out and stuff. <laughs> that's funny mm-hmm. I, I never realized it until like now yeah that's funny which side note i would just like to say austin land walked so bridgerton could fly i know that austin land is set in modern times but it's this fun regency related film that's also a bit cheeky it's a bit of sexual tension and it's funny it didn't take itself too seriously and i think the success of that paved the way a bit for something like Bridgerton, even maybe the new version of Emma, which yeah. is also a bit playful and artistic. But I feel like Austin Land was this great example of a film that took a fun novel and leaned into it, into the quirky bits and the colorful side of what Regency stories could be like. And it's just further proof to me that this genre is something that can be funny and appealing to different audiences. And now it's making me want to watch it. Maybe that's the next movie I'm going to subject you to. Fine. I mean, Star Trek finished and I didn't even realize that I was on the final episode. So I need something else to fill the void. This is going to be completely different (laughs) to filling that void. I'm just going to say, but it'll be fun. Yeah. We'll talk about the duel as it happens um, a little bit more, which will be in the next episode Mm -hmm. of the podcast. 
So at the Featheringtons, Lady Featherington is going through her husband's things in his office. Up in Penelope's room, however, Marina is hatching a plan to capture Colin Bridgerton's heart, and quickly. She thinks that he is eager and will marry her fast. Excitedly, she says that she believes he will propose soon. Penelope, however, seems devastated. Thankfully, Eloise distracts her from being too down when she shows up at the house with theories about Lady Whistledown. Eloise believes that Whistledown is a widow, or a single woman of means, who is invited to all of the balls, but that no one notices, really. This seems to upset Penelope, and she shouts at Eloise, telling her that she doesn't care who it is. People have real problems going on, mature problems, problems that are bigger than some silly writer. Penelope has things to worry about, things like marriage. She tells Eloise that she cannot expect her to understand and that not everybody can be a pretty Bridgerton. Eloise kind of gets a bit offended at this and, and runs off, but, you know, it's it's a shame, Penelope, because, you know, you are beautiful and you just don't see it. Penelope regrets her outburst, but the deed is done, as Eloise runs off, shocked by the conversation. So there's so much going on here. I think I want to revisit this scene after we're done recapping the show. You can see that, like... Everything is starting to crack for everyone in the show. Everybody is getting desperate in their own situations. And Penelope just has such little patience with Eloise, who is running around trying to figure out something that doesn't seem important at the minute, which I feel like I can relate to that. I get that. Um, Marina is trying to trap the guy that Penelope is into. So she's in a desperate situation. Penelope is stuck in her situation. No one has shown any interest in her while she's out during the season. And then the, the one person that she is interested in seems to have blinders on for Marina, who is manipulating him into proposing quickly. So it's hard because you feel for both of them. Like, I feel bad for Penelope. I've never been in this direct situation myself. But as someone who's all, always been a bit curvier, you watch these situations where these beautiful girls have such confidence about catching a guy's attention and being able to kind of play with a guy's emotions a bit just because they are pretty and not to say that us curvy girls aren't pretty but I think I identify with Penelope a lot you can see that she is insecure about her weight based on some comments that others have made she internally compares herself with Marina and you can just tell that she doesn't feel pretty or alluring enough compared to Marina like I just I know this look that she's got and I know those feelings and all the while you're watching someone else be able to just easily do something and turn the head of a guy and get the uh, the attention of guys that you'd never be able to, to turn the heads of. So it's just difficult because it brings out the worst insecurities and you compare yourself to them. And I feel like Colin's attention to Marina, it's just further proof and confirmation for Penelope that those insecurities that she's already probably had about her body and her beauty compared to to Marina's are confirmed in Colin's attitude towards Marina. So of course she's going to act out and take it out on her friends. She's just seen that the guy she's interested in, who she's given a lot of attention to, has no interest in giving her that attention back. And yet someone else who hasn't even been around that long has caught his eye instantly. High school Kayla is feeling all the things watching this storyline for Penelope. You feel bad for her because she is beautiful and she is worthy of love. But you watch her grapple with these comparisons like many of us can do without even having to say that. But I do think this is such a reason why plus size people should be in period dramas. I think that's why it's so important because I identified with that character so much like as a high school person. And I think anybody that's that's watching that now, you know, 
for someone like me, I always saw the, the, the kind of Kira Knightley's and everything be the stars of, of period dramas. And these girls are flawless. The Carrie Mulligans, these girls are flawless and, and beautiful. Um, but it, it would just be nice to be able to see plus size girls going through problems such as this. And I really appreciated this. On the flip side, you see, uh, you feel for Marina because she's in even more of a sticky situation. Her survival in society is now completely linked to finding a husband. If she doesn't, she's essentially shunned and could have a hard time surviving. So you understand why she would be so desperate to pick someone who she found is more of a, a contemporary to these old guys and someone who would be kind to her and be good to her, even if it is wrong in deceiving him. So this is just tough all around for these girls. And and really, it's probably stuff that they shouldn't even be dealing with at their age anyways. I, I don't know that we know what their ages are in this, but it's like, it's just a, it's just a lot for you to carry on your back. Um, mm. Yeah. It would be silly for me to say that I know what, what you're talking about, because obviously it's a problem that's distinctly related to being a woman, and in this case, a woman in the Regency period. But I will say that it's unfortunate that Colin isn't seeing Penelope that way because she obviously cares for him. Yeah. They've grown up together. And this is the problem, though. This is 100% the problem. They grew up together. So, you know, they've got this great friendship. He might even see her as, you know, a younger sister, mm -hmm. the same way as, as he sees Eloise. And he's still super young. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's probably 15 or something. No, 16. I think he's a bit older, but I, uh, yeah, he's he's definitely younger, obviously, than Anthony and... Calm. yeah de Mean definitely benedict, benedict. Yeah. he's definitely a, a lot younger but the thing is it, at most he's going to be what 18 yeah pro probably we don't know they don't but, really tell us that but yeah no, no they don't tell us but he yeah. doesn't he doesn't look older than that like I, i'd be very surprised if they tried to say that he was older than 18 and it's just you know think about you know the way that you were as a teenager oh gosh and like he 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 just he doesn't see Penelope in that way because of the way that they've grown up and they're still quite young. But this this new young woman comes in who is like, you know, stunning compared mm -hmm. to the people that because because if he sees Penelope as a sister and like he doesn't like Penelope's sisters and all this kind of stuff, and then this new person comes in who isn't related to him whatsoever. Well it's like the new girls coming into school, isn't it? It's like ooh. Oh, yeah. No, hundred percent. Different girls, yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent. What's even kind of worse, in a way, is that they live in a society where the men are supposed to make every move because mm. the women can't even vote yet. So it's probably very unlikely that a, w a young woman with Penelope's demeanor would ever step out and say something to Colin. We've seen her attempt to make some comments, but it never quite gets there, and it doesn't go well for her each time she tries. Yeah. So yeah, definitely feeling sympathetic towards Penelope here, but also a little for Eloise because she suddenly realizes that her friend, who's always been sympathetic for her feelings of not wanting to conform to social expectations, is actually very interested in finding a husband, etc., yeah. etc., all of this stuff. So she's probably feeling a little childish here, as if her concerns aren't worthy of attention. Yet ironically, Eloise's obsession is very similar to the questions that the audience are having at this moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, we don't really care if Penelope gets married yet because it's not actually important. As, no. Like, you know, yeah. so we sympathize for her feelings, but it isn't essential from our point of view that she marry. But we do care about who Lady Whistledown is. Mm -hmm. That is the central mystery. Yeah. 
we could argue that the main point of this show or this season of the show is will they won't they between Daphne and Simon but I would argue from a storytelling point of view that the main mystery and enigma that the writers have asked is who is Lady Whistle now and so that is the thing that's in the back of our minds in every single episode yeah so of course we're rooting for eloise's investigations to turn something up because we care that's the thing that's the well i'm imagining that's the main thing that the majority of the audience are actually wondering so we have to kind of laugh alongside the maid when she accused her or another servant of being lady whistledown and now we cringe because to us the question of who's writing these pamphlets is actually more important but those desires to know have been shot down for being immature yeah yeah i totally get you that makes that makes complete sense so from the audience's point of view you know we're with eloise on this one we want to know but for penelope she's dealing with her own stuff right now so yeah i think it's um it's really interesting and it's it's going to be fun to kind of recap later episodes of this so yeah so this is where we're going to end the first part of episode four. We're really glad that we decided to flip th split this episode up because I feel like we should we could just go on and on here. Uh, the The crazy thing is that in terms of this episode, we're continuing the recap at about 50 minutes. So our next episode will be about the last 10 minutes of the episode because it's just so tense and there's so much to talk about. So we're going to talk about dueling a bit next episode because... We both think that that's kind of a fascinating activity in this period. It's definitely, in terms of this series, um, what do you call it? Not the climax, but... It's a turning point. Yeah, it's a turning point. So it, it's really important. Yeah. Uh, like I said earlier, talking about the duel as it happens is a little bit better than talking about it on screen, so to speak. And it is really interesting, so really happy to talk about it in the next episode. So I'm I'm just excited that the new season's been announced because it was taking forever. I think one of the things that's going to be so interesting going forward is that each season is supposedly, supposed, supposedly, <laughs> supposedly, supposedly going to be focused on a different Bridgerton or at least a different character. Is there a show out there that does something like that? Like in the same way where it's kind of switches... Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of. There are. Anthology series are similar because you follow a different character each episode. And I think Fargo does something very similar, um, though I haven't seen it, so don't quote me, with each of its seasons. Okay, okay. Um. So, yeah. I feel like it's something that works with books, but with shows, a lot of the time, people get really attached to main characters. So switching it around uh, every season could be hard on viewers. I don't know that we've seen anything quite like this, um, so it's going to be interesting to see how they pull it off. But if anyone can do it, it's Shonda Rhimes. I think she's the, the queen of drama right now, so she can make it happen. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'm, I'm really interested to see in what they do with Simon and Daphne in the next season. Um, I, I think it's hard to imagine that they'll be ignored completely, but as a guest appearance or a recurring character's maybe... Um, from a storytelling point of view, it's hard to imagine that Shonda Rhimes would bring them back for every episode because it would steal focus from Anthony, who we've known, who we now know is the, the main focus of the next season. Yeah. So what I do think that is interesting is that in the period drama world, there's kind of the last few years, especially since Downton Abbey's wrapped. A lot of people have been sitting around waiting for the next Downton Abbey. I think they were hoping maybe that Vanity Fair, Sanditon, Belgravia, a couple of these period drama shows that's come out in the last probably three or four years, that one of these would catch on and be the next like blockbuster type period dramas. 
but nothing has come along like Downton Abbey to do that. And obviously, Downton Abbey and Bridgerton are, are very different. Bridgerton relies kind of heavily on sex and the fairy tale world a bit, and it's it's not based in reality like Downton Abbey is, um, especially with costumes and, and time periods and everything like that. But I think it, it can attract a similar type of audience in, in terms of the drama between uh, the different characters, which I think Bridgerton can fill that kind of void. I mean, they're both ensemble casts. Yeah. I think that's a key thing. So I know, you know, we've talked a little bit about storytelling and stuff, but we haven't mentioned too many of like the behind the scenes screenwriting kind of thing. Yeah. And I don't want to go into it too much because I'm sure a lot of our listeners aren't going to care about how these kinds of shows are constructed from a writing point of view as much as, say, I will. Um, but... Yeah, the, the, the ensemble cast thing is something that we found has been really popular lately with these serial type shows. Game of Thrones, Downton Abbey, Bridgerton, you know, all of these shows have got lots of characters in lots of different situations across this story world. And because it's television, we've got hours and hours and hours. Like on the, the short end, you've got 13 hours mm -hmm. in, in a season. And on the on the longer end, you've got twenty hours mm -hmm. for a typical season, um, where we can really immerse ourselves in this world. And we've seen that, especially with streaming services, people just love that. And so, yeah, it's it, it attracts people because it it's the structure of the show. I think the genre as well. Obviously, it, it's very it's like a general audience, and we've talked you know, in, in the first episode of the podcast, how not many men are probably out there going, yeah, like, <laughs> let's go watch Bridgerton. But at the same time, like, they totally can watch this because it's not... Well, I think the same thing happened with Downton Abbey. It was kind of like, I, I remember when Downton Abbey first came out and I we're going to talk about that in the next episode, talking about male versus female type thing and, and how many people watch period dramas, that sort of thing. But I, I just want to make a note that that I remember when Downton Abbey came out and there was a lot of my guy friends and the guys around me that I knew that started watching it and was like, oh my gosh, well, what, what's happened with this character and what's happened with this character? And I, I think in the same way that Bridgerton, they can draw in guys um, just, just the same way that they can women. So I, I do think in a way they've been looking for Julian Fellows to bring out that next Downton Abbey period, which right now he's he's busy um making the gilded age which we'll we'll see whether or not that'll that'll kind of become as big as Downton Abbey or Bridgerton has we don't know but i th i think it seems like Shonda Rhimes has done it and like i say queen of drama um so what was that comparison that they made Bridgerton's bigger than the witcher now i mean it, it reached 82 million viewers it's fantastic. Forbes specifically stated that this outpaces any linear or broadcast television show exponentially. So I'm really happy for Rhymes because she was already a powerhouse in TV. I mean, that's why her Netflix deal is supposed to be part of the nine-figure club or $100 million or more, right? But this level of success has just got to be so gratifying as as a writer, as, as a producer and all of that kind of thing. And you've already mentioned um, before about how the genre needed something like this to prove to TV execs that it was okay and downright profitable to make more Regency things, which I think is perfect for you and other fans of the genre. 
I mean, because I've been fortunate that sci-fi has always been seen as a profitable venture on TV and film. In, in some infamous cases, <coughs> Firefly, <coughs> that promised profitability wasn't enough for the network. <coughs> Fox, <coughs> money grabbing. Anyway, so Amazon, Netflix, the BBC, every big player in the world of TV today is spending and making money on my favourite genre. I wish there was a little bit more quality fantasy out there, but The Witcher uh, was great, and hopefully the upcoming Lord of the Rings show from Amazon will oh, be I too. Didn't know that. Mm, yeah, okay. uh, it's been in it's been in production for quite a while, as far as I know, um, or at least has been in talks to be. And I think it's about time that like your genre got some love as well, because TV, uh, it, it's just it's great. We're now we're in the golden age of TV. We truly are, and we're we're going to talk about that more next episode beginning of next episode so great yeah that's enough from me then that's enough from both of us i think people gotta be tired of us by this point baby don't say that please come back please come back we love doing <laughs> this it's so fun yeah yeah so anyways thank you for joining us here at regency rumors if you've got anything to share about the episode that we've covered or you've got a question our facebook group is great for that sort of thing uh, the Facebook group is facebook.com slash groups slash Regency Rumors. Or you can email us at a regencygirl at gmail.com. A Regency Girl is the name of my blog where I talk about all things Regency period and period drama travel. So check it out. Shameless plug. We shall talk to you soon. Thank you, dear listeners. And goodbye for now. Bye.